I'm going to give a review and overview of what we have discussed in the past two weeks. And the Buddha does exactly that at this, in this discourse. He repeats what he has said. And uh, what he's doing here, he repeats in reverse order. When he was explaining dependent arising, he started out with aging and death and got all the way back to mentality, materiality, consciousness, and consciousness to mentality, materiality. Now he starts in reverse order, and I'll read that out because that is his review of what he has said. Thus, Ananda, with mentality and materiality, mind and body, as condition, there is consciousness. With consciousness as condition, there is mentality and materiality. With mentality and materiality as condition, there is contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling. With feeling as condition, there is craving. With craving as condition, there is clinging. With clinging as condition, there is existence. With existence as condition, there is birth. With birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this entire mass of suffering. And again, I'd like to um, repeat that having seen Dukkha truly, one doesn't suffer from it. It just is. Everywhere, all the time, for everyone. The only time one suffers from it is when one doesn't like it, when one wants to get out of it and get it different from the way it is. Just the way it is, there's now no suffering. It's just an an acknowledgement of it. So this is the reverse order. And he always does that in all dependent arisings. He starts at one end and then shows the other way that it's just the same if he puts it in the reverse order. Now, with mentality and materiality as a condition, there is consciousness, and we have already discussed that, that consciousness is a condition for mind and body, but mind and body are also the condition for consciousness. There is no consciousness apart from a mind and a body. And then it goes on with until the aging and death and sorrow, pain and lamentation. He also then repeats each item by itself. I'm not going to read all that out to you. He's repeating each item, aging and death, birth, existence, clinging and so on, and says again that condition for it and elaborates on that on that condition which that wasn't so then there wouldn't be any result now I'm not I have we have already discussed all that we have already looked at every bit of this but what we want to look at tonight is what is actually the examination that each person needs to do if they want to find out whether there is really somebody there. Now, one only does that if one has come to a point in one's own private understanding 
where one realizes that even though this me is very clever, it's still not going to get the better of the conditions of the world. With all its cleverness, with all its manipulations, with all its hopes and desires, with all its inbuilt faculties, with all its facilities, with all its knowledge, knowledge, it's still not going to do it. Only then does it become interesting to find out if there really is such a person that has been trying all that. If one still thinks, and 98% of mankind, I would say, thinks in this way, that if we just do it a little better next time, find the right person, the right place to live, the right food, the right teacher, the right meditation, the right job, the right money, whatever it may be that's missing this time, if we're going to get it, and we can, we will do it, this wonderful dream of perfection, this illusion of getting it done, when that is still there, and as I say, in 98% of mankind, that illusion exists. At, on all different levels, then, of course, why would one want to find out if there is a self or not? Because it's the self that's going to get all this in order. And it's going to get it in order for myself. So, obviously, I need this in very badly, the self, to get it in order for myself. Now, having, though, finally found out that it isn't that way, that the world hasn't got it to give because within the world there is everything of a changeable nature, nothing remains, it all changes from moment to moment and that within that change there's constant friction and within that constant friction there is constant dukkha and that in reality we've made it all up When we see that quite clearly, then, of course, comes the moment when we want to investigate. And this is the moment that we have arrived at, at least theoretically, hopefully also practically. And our examinations are of of many different uh, facets. And these examinations I will now repeat, not only because it's easy to forget them, but also because it's very important that we do them. This is a do-it-yourself job, the whole of the Buddha's teaching. And one only gets interested in it when one takes responsibility for everything that happens to one. So the first examination that is to be done, and we've all done it, but I'm just repeating all of them, is to see the impermanence which comes with everything that we consist of. Feeling, sensation, thought, reaction, seeing, sense contacts, everything that comes in our orbit, does it remain? Likewise, body. Is it the same or is it changed? Is it sometimes better and sometimes worse? Luckily, it's also sometimes better, isn't it? It's not always having so much trouble. So all of it that comes into our orbit, whether it is internal or external, 
to be viewed in the way of impermanence. Is it true? The Buddha said everything is impermanent. Now, is that really true? Trees, birds, sky, day, night, sun, moon, stars, rain, wind, sound. Is it impermanent or isn't it? And if things are still a bit dubious, where can I find something permanent? Search for it, if you like. That's the first examination. The second one is, the Buddha said everything is dukkha. Nothing is totally satisfactory. Okay, is that true? Is this body totally satisfactory? Is this mind totally satisfactory? Look at it, is it? Or is there still that little niggling doubt in the back? If only I were to, whatever. Do this or that, think this or that, have nothing ever happened to me, have nobody do this or that, would it then be totally satisfactory? One can, in this respect, look at one's past and at one's present. Because what we mostly do, we try to look at the future and figure it out as something so much better than what we have now. But in reality, please look at that too. Does the future really exist? And how are you going to manipulate it so that it really does what you want it to do? Has it ever happened before? So how is that manipulation going to happen now? Just because one has taken a long meditation course, one is not going to be a better manipulator under no circumstances. On the contrary, one could be worse. So, dukkha in the present, in the past, but what about this future? Does it really exist? You see, when you have memory, there's also an interesting point which comes right in there. When there is a memory, Is that really the past? The memory is in the present. You're making something arise which is sleeping in some recesses of the consciousness. So it's present. There is only present. The more we make the unpleasant things arise of the past, the more unpleasant our present is, which is utter foolishness. And some people really perpetrate that foolishness with a vengeance. But some people, of course, have already seen that and don't do that anymore. So, even the past can only be brought up with memory, and memory is present. And the future can only be brought up with conjecture, and the conjecture is also present. So there's nothing other than the present. And then you can examine the present and can see whether there's anything in that which does not have an inbred quality of unsatisfactoriness in it, simply for the reason that it too is impermanent and depends on a condition. Even the highest jhana depends on a condition. 
and is impermanent. So that has to be examined, impermanence and dukkha. And with the body and with the mind. And that's all we've got. Now again, just as we do with impermanence, internal and external, we do that with dukkha. Look outside. Can you find it? Or can you find something where there is no change and therefore no friction and therefore no movement and therefore no dukkha? Check it out and see whether it's true that everything has that. Then, having seen those two, we get to the third characteristic. The Buddha said, all existence has three characteristics, which are anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, dukkha, and non-self. So now we have to examine the third one, the non-self, which we also call substancelessness, because the word non-self, although I'm going to keep using it, is uh, so often... Um, a difficulty because we're so bound up with the self. So well, how do we do this? Now the examination for is there a real self or isn't there? The first thing is to examine the body. It's the easy one. So we do, one of the things we do is we take it apart, put a zipper in front, take it apart, take all the bits and pieces out. You can count them if you like. The Buddha calls it the 32 parts of the body. See if you can find 32. Probably can find more, actually. So see if you can find them all. If you like, you don't have to. Just take them all out nice and neat, lay them all down, and then look. Which one am I? That whole mess? Goodness. The answer is no. Then put them right nicely back in, zip it all up, and then the relief. Oh, I'm back. How nice. So then body is back. But there is a little bit of doubt entered into the mind, seeing that this is all bits and pieces. And maybe you could take all the bones out and the skin shrunk and all the rest of it. And maybe there is that little doubt now, well, maybe I'm not the body. So the next thing is the elements. And this is a very important uh, step. To feel them in oneself, and connect with the ones outside. Now, when you're outside, this is specifically useful and specifically helpful because you actually have the earth under your feet. And even more so when you're barefoot, you have the earth there and you have the earth element in the foot. And the two are nothing different. They may have a different color, but their quality is the same. They have the quality of solidity. So there, that's one way. Then you have the wind and the breath. And as you watch your breath, it can become one with the wind. And then you know that this is no different because it's all one and the same. All material manifestations, such as earth or wind, all consist of the four primary elements, earth, fire, water, air, and so do we. Now, just this one sentence that I've just said is not enough. You've got to feel it, experience it. And actually, it is a very pleasant experience. 
And when you examine it, why is it pleasant? You may come to the correct conclusion that it's pleasant because the me wasn't in it. It was just elements. As soon as there's no me, everything can become quite pleasant. As long as the me is there, things are really usually tense, anxious, fearful, and have a quality of separation which needs protection. When I'm separate from everything else, I need protection because everything else can encroach upon my space, upon my territory. So with that separation comes fear. And that fear is the human condition until we can do otherwise. All of this leads in that direction. So elements are a very important thing to do. And at the moment of feeling the unity and the totality of these elements, feeling the air and the breath as being one, or the wind or the air, whichever way, and even feeling the temperature within the body and the temperature that comes from the sun as being the same thing, then, of course, me being this one thing has to be let go of. And there is an expansion feeling. There's a feeling of unity. And then, at that moment, there's no protection needed. So there is no fear. And if you can actually experience it and then recognize the experience in the way I've just described or any other way. The recognition of the experience, that's insight. You've got to recognize the experience. When there is that recognition, then it never leaves us again. We stay, that stays with us. So that's all parts of insight. Now, so we've got 32 parts in the body, but however many you find, it doesn't matter. And we've got the four elements. Now we've got the mind, of course, and this is much more difficult. And um, the Buddha says, even though, I read that out to you, even though the uh, worldling will accept the fact that he's not the body, but he certainly thinks he's a mind. So we have to take the mind apart. And that is a much more... um, not more difficult, but a much more impactful experience if it's done correctly. Now, the four parts of mind, the sense contact, which is, brings the sense consciousness, the contact, then comes the feeling. In the dependarizing, it's called contact, to differentiate it from the consciousness, which is just awareness. Sense contact, feeling, perception, which is labeling, and then the reaction, which is the mental formation. Now, it's indispensable to become aware of this fourfold progression in the mind. That's indispensable for insight. That cannot be dispensed with. You can dispense with the 32 parts of the body. You can dispense even with the elements. But you cannot dispense with checking out the aggregates of the mind. Because this is where, supposedly, the knower sits, who is called me. 
So this is absolutely indispensable. Now you have to know those four parts and you must check them out. In their inevitable progression, that too needs to be experienced. It's inevitable. So when you're outside or even inside, it doesn't matter, and you see the feeling arises with the sense contact almost simultaneously and therefore difficult to separate. But the labeling is clear. So what do you see? You might see a, a tree. The mind says uh, uh, peach tree. Maybe it isn't, but the mind says peach tree. And then it says, very pretty. Spring is the nicest time of the year. One should always come here in spring. I always thought I w- would move to New Mexico. But actually, if I, if I move to New Mexico, I have to give up my house. And I really like my house. And so we've got an hour and a half of moving or not moving. And all we did was see a tree. We might have already called the moving company. So this is very important to become aware of. This is indispensable because only then do we get to know ourselves. And then we don't wonder anymore why we do things the way we do and why other people do the things the way they do and why we don't agree with them on what they do. So when we see this progression of the four parts, we can then slowly come back and see that the feeling which was aroused through the sight of these flowers was a pleasant one. And the labeling was only whatever we know about this thing that we saw there. And because it was a pleasant feeling, the craving arose to be near that thing that arouses a pleasant feeling. Now that's the understanding of what goes on. And if we don't see that, we haven't got in touch with feeling. We need to get in touch with feeling because as we see in a moment, the Buddha singles out feeling out of the four mental aggregates to explain in this most important discourse. So we'll come to that in a minute. But first we know the progression of the four, which is inevitable, and then as we know the progression, we can come back and see why did I have that reaction? Not maybe the opposite reaction. The reaction may be, I don't like it, I want to get away from it. But why am I having it? And then we will see that nothing, there's no other, no other cause, no other condition for the reaction except the feeling. And then we will know that there's no other, no other cause for the feeling except the contact that we make. And this is also a very important point, this contact. Obviously, our senses are always working. There's nothing we can do and there's nothing we should do about them. They are necessary for our survival. But we don't have to think what we're thinking. That too is sense contact. And this is a very important point of understanding these four things because I said sense contact at the beginning. The sense contact, which is the five senses. But it can be an idea which is the mental contact, 
which is just as much a sense contact as any of the other five. So when there's mental contact, again feeling arises, again labeling arises, and reaction. And with that, we will also eventually know that our mind can only grasp that where we put it. If we now put our mind into our kitchen at home, you're in your kitchen at home. And it doesn't matter whether it's halfway around the world. It's in your, you're in your kitchen at home. That's where your mind is. So the mind isn't here. It's where you put it. It's very important that our mind is where we put it. Now put your mind for one second into your right big toe. So that's where the mind is, in the right big toe. Now, that's a totally neutral feeling, right big toe. Nobody cares much about their right big toe, as long as they have got it. Now, if we didn't have it, of course, that'd be a different story. So, it's okay, it's neutral. But now, with the kitchen at home, something could have happened. There could have been a pleasant feeling of, ah, my home. Or an unpleasant one, ugh, got to cook again. Either way. And it's halfway around the world. It's got nothing to do with what's going on here. But the mind is there. So mental contact also brings feeling, perception and reaction. And we don't have to have the mental contact which we don't want or need. So this is a very important point to know. That one day when the mind has been trained enough in meditation to stay put and not go all over the place, we can put the mind where we want it. And when we put the mind where we want it, we'd be utter fools if we would voluntarily become unhappy. We just put the mind where we want it. So we can see from watching these four parts of mind that this is what's happening. Now that's the first step of that. Second step, of course, is also that the whole thing is impermanent. The third thing that we see is also that we actually produce our own dukkha by putting our mind on things which are totally worthless. We think they are so important to put our mind on because they seem to have something to do with me. But if we would register the fact that we are just making ourselves unhappy, we might be able to let go and think something entirely different. So we see impermanence, we see self-inflicted dukkha, and we also see an inevitable progression. Now, that's a, these are all very important. But then, one of the things to do is to stop at the sense contact and not go any further. See only seeing. Hearing, only hearing. These two are the most um, prominent ones. But also thinking, only thinking. And not having a reaction to it. Because if we see only, or hear only, the seeing is only f color and shape, the hearing is only sound. There's only sound, nothing else. The rest is all in the mind. We must try that. This is part of the practice. It's a very important part of practice. And the thinking is just an idea. 
but we believe it and we act upon it. Now we have an idea that a certain person is unpleasant, so we start disliking. Can we see that we're only hurting ourselves and nobody else? And that that thought that we had was nothing but an idea. It had no basis in fact. It was just an idea. Why? Because some unpleasant feeling had arisen through some contact, all conditioned arising. Again and again we get back to watching cause and effect. So here what, we, what we're at is that when we watch all these parts of the mind, one of the things to do, the next thing to do is to stop its sense contact and again see how this all is dependent arising. But then comes a very important step. How did the me get in there? How did that actually get in there? Is it fact or fiction? Now, if it's a fact, how can I prove that? And we have tried, all of us, innumerable lifetimes with innumerable identification systems and manipulations to prove that this is really me. I'm trying, of course. And fame and fortune, and reaction and dislike, and hate and greed are all proving to us that this is me. But it's the other way around. We are having all those because we are convinced that this is me. It's not that they are proving the me. It's the other way around. Me being there makes all that arise. Because our feelings are constantly bound up and used for desire as a reaction to it. And our perceptions are checking out whether there's pleasure in it or, or displeasure. And then our... Um, intentional mental formations or volitions, our intentions, they react to that with greed and hate. So as we do this all the time, this happens because we are so convinced that there's somebody sitting in there. So we're taking this fiction as a given and then operate from there instead of checking this fiction out and seeing whether we can operate from fact. Now, if we want to operate from fact, we have to check particularly our four parts of the mind. Now, we have the sense contacts, the seeing and the hearing and the tasting and the touching and the smelling. Now, if that's really me doing that, which one? Check it. These are all examinations. Every single one of this is an examination. I'm repeating everything that I've already said, but I'm putting it all together in those parts that need to be examined. Which one of the five? Which one am I? So, obviously, the answer is going to be all five. So, 
If I'm one of them at this moment and it disappears, have I disappeared? And then I come back, where did I go while the one has gone? Where did this me go? Now, obviously, when we're asleep, there aren't any of those five sense contacts. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sleeping. We can't do that. When you, when you ask somebody, are you asleep? And the person says, yes, obviously, they can't be sleeping. So, where did me go? So then me must be identical with sleep. Now, with those five senses and their constant arising and passing away, we may have already now an ability to say, no, that's not me. I'm not the smeller, the one, this one who smells, one who tastes, the one who touches. No, I'm not that. Well, we already agree that we're not the body. I mean, anybody will agree to that, although hardly anybody acts that way, but practically everybody will agree to it. But not to actually acting like that's a different story. So then we have, after the sense contact, then comes the most important thing, and I'm going to leave it out for the moment. Let's look at the reactions that we have. Well, they're constantly different, aren't we? One time it's a reaction of uh, agreement. Then it's a reaction of disagreement. Then it's one of like. Then it's one of dislike. Then it's one of wanting. Then it's one of wanting to get rid of. Then it's one of hoping. Then it's one of preparing, of planning, of worrying, of fearing, of uh, anxiety. There's always a different one. Sometimes it's a reaction of loving. Sometimes a reaction of hating. There's always something. So which one? Well, all of them. Okay. So again, when one goes away, where do I go? Do I have to wait a while till I can come back again and get a new reaction? Or what happens to this me? The truth of the matter, of course, is that we don't have usually the ability to just see. And this is why it's so important to use the sense contact, and particularly seeing and hearing, which is the um, most prominent, those, those are the most prominent, and try whether one can actually just hear and just see. Because the moment we go further and let them enter the mind and we give all this, this storyline about it, then the me has arisen at that moment. But just seeing, sense contact. And so that now we come to the one that the Buddha has singled out in this discourse, and it is the most important one. It's the one that we really think we are, and that's feeling. Now, we know already that there are only three kinds of feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So we have to decide now which one. So again, we will say we are all of them. And again, we will see that they're totally impermanent, that they're constantly coming and going. And not only that, but they are also caused and conditioned by contact. So... Then, if there isn't any contact and there isn't any condition for feeling, then me has disappeared. Or, on the other hand, me is conditioned. Well, if the self is conditioned by contact, because if the self is feeling, then a conditioned self is certainly not what we're looking for. We're looking for something that's independent, that's masterly, that's autonomous, 
that uh, is somebody. But if it's due to a condition, well, that's not what we're looking for, is it? I mean, that condition can always disappear, and it always does, because our sense contacts always disappear, and so the feeling which is uh, aroused by them, well, that also disappears again. So we wind up with a conditioned self if we use dependent arising. So with all that, it's all very well, but one's got to do it. So become aware of feeling and see where it came from and then see whether there's really somebody sitting within that. Whether really sitting someone on top of the feeling or whether the feeling is sitting on top of somebody. Actually, the Buddha says like this, that we have three, three particular ways of looking at feeling. I'll read you what he says. Ananda, when a person does not consider feeling as self and does not consider self as without experience of feeling and does not consider myself feels for myself as subject to feeling, then being without such considerations, he does not cling to anything in the world. Not clinging, he is not agitated. Not being agitated, he personally attains Nibbana. Now, isn't that nice and simple? <laughs> so we'll all go home having attained Nibbana because we don't have to believe anymore that the self feels. But that's not enough, obviously. Now it comes a little more. He understands that destroyed is birth, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done. There's no returning to this state of being. And then comes a different story altogether about this Tathagata. I'll read you that another time. I told you about that already. So this aspect of feeling. Now, this has three aspects of feeling. First one is that I am actually the one who feels. That's the first one, feeling a self. Then the second possibility is that there is a self and then there is feeling. So which means self doesn't have feeling, which is an utter impossibility and contradiction in terms because if I don't feel, I can't feel that I am. So without feeling, there isn't any I am idea because everybody feels this is me. And we feel that's me sitting on a pillow and that's me getting up in the morning and me being hungry and me being thirsty and me and all the rest of it. So if there's no feeling, then there's no me. So that's an utter impossibility. It's only a theory. The Buddha says these are theorists that that think like that. And then the third possibility, which he's actually pronouncing here, and I'm reducing it to three, that there's a self distinct from feeling but subject to feeling. Now again, if there's a self distinct from feeling, but that feelings arise and it is subject, so then we have a self that's subject to something. Well, we don't really want a self that's subject to something because what we actually think is that there's first a self and then all these things are happening and we are actually in charge. Now, anybody who has meditated long enough knows that one isn't in charge. Because if one were in charge, why wouldn't we get completely concentrated? And if we were in charge, why doesn't this body stop making a mess of things? Why doesn't it just stop 
saying anything and just sits there nicely and quietly and doesn't do anything? And why doesn't the mind sit nicely and quietly and doesn't do anything? And why do we get irate and irritated and angry? And why don't we just have only love and compassion and peace? If we were in charge, wouldn't we do that? If we were to run, run this universe, wouldn't we do that? If we were in charge of this little universe here, wouldn't we be doing that? We'd be fools if we didn't. And we always have that in mind. That's what we really want to do. And it doesn't pan out for some reason. There's always something that's in the way that we can't do it. And we haven't quite figured out why we can't do it, but that's what happens. So we, what we are actually looking for is for autonomy and mastery. And But we can already say that that is nonsense. It's unmasterable, we can't master it, and it's not autonomous. Because obviously, even if it's separate from feeling, it's subject to it. I mean, obviously it's not separate from feeling, but if it were, it's subject to it. So it's not autonomous. It has all sorts of things which are impinging on it all the time. And it doesn't seem to have any kind of jurisdiction over all that stuff. And then, of course, we like to make it permanent. Now, theoretically and intellectually, everybody knows that that is not so. There isn't a permanent person here. But we try to make it so. We try to put things around it. So these are our three ways of looking at it. But with feeling... Oh, hello. (laughs) (laughs) It's very important. wants to hear the Dhamma. <laughs> now, feeling is really singled out by the Buddha as that particular aspect of the four mental aggregates which need to be examined, that one. And he talks about it on several uh, instances. Now, I'll just. There was another one here. Those recluses and Brahmins who considering self consider it in various ways, all consider the five aggregates or a certain one of them. So we come back again to the aggregates and or a certain one of them. And then he says, an uninstructed worldling who is without regard for the noble ones considers material form as self or self as possessing material form or material form as in self or self as in material form. This is material form, body. And then he goes on, considers feeling as um, as self or or self as possessing feeling or feeling as in self or self as in feeling. And it goes on with all all the other uh, aggregates. So this is the way that we consider things. And then he says, thus there is personality view. And this personality view is the one that is constantly bugging us. Because this personality is supposed to be something real and special. Nobody believes that they're not special. Everybody wants to be special. And that separates us from each other. And it separates us from the world around us. And with that separation, there's fear. Separation and fear always go together. Have to. Because if I'm separated from others, there's always the fear and the threat that somebody is going to encroach or something is going to encroach. So now we have 
the four parts of the body and the elements and the 32 parts, we have the four parts of the mind. We are going to see their progression. We see that we can stop at sense contact. This is not that easy as, it, as I'm saying it, but it's possible. And we're going to in investigate feeling. How has it arisen? Where does it come from? And if the, the more often we do that, the more clear, the clearer it becomes and the less we're inclined to act upon it. And this is already a very big step, not to act upon it. Then another thing about feeling. We need to trace it back to two main objects or two main um, inherent qualities in us, which really um, have the, the underlying existence in them. And the first one is that we have this desire to be. And then we have the desire to have pleasure. So when we look at our feelings and see that we are reacting to them, then we can find those two in them. Both are intertwined. We're most likely to find both. It's very important to check that out. And then when we see that, it may help us to realize that no matter how much we desire both, it's an always unfulfilled wish. So our desire is totally useless. We can't always be, our existence will stop, and we can't always have pleasure. So we are trying to get what we can never have. And so it's a waste of a good and precious human life. And this is how most of humanity wastes their lives, with both those desires. So we can trace feeling back to that. It's very important. Because when the feeling conditions the craving, that's when our problems arise. So we have that as the condition for it, those two. Always coming the contact, the feelings, the cravings. So examine all that and then see if you take one thing away, you don't have a human being anymore. All these dependent risings are necessary. Now with that, it's not like in the body, there are quite a number of things you can take away and still be a human being. You can take away the, the gallbladder, you can take away one kidney, you can take away the appendix, you can take away even the uh, uh, eyes, you can take away a lot of stuff. I can take away the hair, uh, very easy, and you can take away the teeth, and you still be a human being. But try and take away any of these things, and what do you get? If you get that as this, if you can see this progression, how it happens, then you can see that this human being which is involved in this progression is one which is automatically reacting. And nobody really wants to be that because we all want to be special. We don't want to be autom automatic. We don't want to be an automatically reacting phenomena. So if we can see that, that this is nothing but an automatic reaction which is happening all the time, then it may help us 
to step out between feeling and craving. I guess particularly if we have already examined the feeling and the craving as to being due to those two things which are unfulfillable. The desire to be and the desire for sense pleasure. We have um, the ability to gain wisdom. Wisdom is the understood experience. But if we don't have wisdom, nature abhors a vacuum. Instead of wisdom, we have views. And we have so many that one can actually assume from that that we've got the possibility and the ability to have a lot of wisdom because we are full with views. So if we can have that many views which are taking the place of wisdom, my God, we could have so much wisdom. Now, views are our worst enemy, because it also means, of course, the self-view, the me-views included in that. But all the other views which we have, they all arise out of that one. And if we could examine our views about ourselves in a very objective manner, and that could very well be in a meditative uh, instance. What view have I got about myself? And you will find a lot of identifications there, and all of them perfectly natural. But what are they based on? What are they based on fact or on fiction? Are they based on the reality of a, a physical a quality and a mental or a mental inherent and unchangeable part of us, or are they identifications which we have made up in order to make this self a little more real? and a little more important. Any identification, so if we examine the view about self, which is a very important meditative endeavor, examining my views about me, what do I think I am? So male, female, young, old, beautiful, ugly, rich, poor, intelligent, stupid, father, mother, Daughter, son, aunt, uncle, loving, hating, baker, shoemaker, lawyer, accountant, <coughs> candlestick maker. Don't have those anymore. Yes, we do have them. Potter. All these identifications, don't accept them. Examine them. How did that identification arise? Is it a true, unchanging recognition of the inherent aspect of the five aggregates? Or is it a made-up story? Examine each one of them. So when we find that each one, and each one is a made-up story, when we find that each one is a made-up story, maybe that will give us a better idea where the I arises from. 
the me, where it comes from. Because as if we were to have direct cognition, this is the word of the Buddha, having direct cognition of that which is sitting here, all we would know are five aggregates. And all the rest are actions, reactions, territory, views, and what are called the um, worldly hallucinations, the collective hallucinations of the world. Now, I've told you that already. The collective hallucination of the world helps us to give all these identifications. But this needs real examination. And, of course, the real wish to get rid of this uh, fiction that we're living in. It's a, it's, a, it's a fantasy. The Buddha calls it a dream. We live in a dream. And that's why the Buddha himself is called the awakened one. He woke up from this dream that, that everybody's living in. And so he woke up and he saw it's nothing. One of another thing that we can do is that we also believe, of course, that the self is the center of our personal identity. I mean, that's the whole problem, isn't it? But the trouble with that one is that it doesn't show itself. It's vague, it's elusive, and it's forever changing. Where is it? Is it behind something? Is it hiding? What's it doing? It doesn't reveal its proper identity. So when we, because we can't make it reveal its identity, the self, we give it qualities. And that's the identification process. We give it all these qualities which seem to make it something solid. So you can examine it that way also. It all leads to the same result, of course. If we examine this fiction as fiction, we're taking a different stance. Usually what we do is we examine the happenings with reference to self. But here we could take a different stance and actually examine the happenings, whether they are pointing to a self and not examining the, the self as a reference point so that all the happenings, whichever they are, internal, external, pleasant or unpleasant, so that all the happenings have reference to the self, but the other way around. See, to use the happenings as a reference point, this is one of the most important things to do. Ex I'll repeat it. Examining that, what is happening within and without, as reference point, and see whether there's a self in it. So we're taking a totally different stance from the whole, from the way we usually do it. Usually we see, we say, this is me and this is happening to me, by me, whichever way. But here we can say, just happening, where is the self in all that? So it's the, uh, turning it upside down, which the Buddha calls direct cognition. So that the qualities which we see 
and the, the traits and all the signposts which we see belong to the happening itself and not to me, who is supposedly owning all that. Now that would, if that is done with determination, it could be extremely helpful. is in other words of the Buddha. This samsara, the rounder, is without conceivable beginning. No first point is discerned of beings roaming and wandering in samsara, hindered by ignorance, fettered by craving. Just as a dog, tethered by a leash and tied to a stout pole or post, keeps running and circling around that same pole or post in the same way, the uninstructed worldling who is without regard for the noble ones considers material form as self. And then he goes on with all the other uh, aggregates. Uh, or self as possessing material form or material form as in self or self as in material form. And he goes on with all the others or self as in consciousness. He keeps running and circling around that same material form that same feeling, that same perception, those same mental formations, that same consciousness. Running and circling thus, he is not released from material form, feeling, perception, mental formations and consciousness. He is not released from birth, aging and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. He is not released from suffering, I declare. This is a, from another discourse, another explanation of the same thing. And then, as a last um, explanation, I'll um, mention, so to say, the honeypot. Because what you have heard so far is not only somewhat difficult to do, but it often goes against the grain, because it's me that wants to be happy. And if there isn't any me, well, who's going to be happy? I don't care whether you are happy, I want to be happy. So the whole thing doesn't work. Again, this is an explanation or an exposition of using the happening not as reference point, but me as reference point. If we were to use happy as reference point, it would look entirely different. But what we can look at is this. Once having got rid of self, our nature is bliss. Sat Chit Ananda. Chit is Chitta. Ananda is bliss. And Sat is the beings. Our nature is bliss. But only if there's nobody there. Because as long as there's somebody there, that somebody wants something. And as long as we want something, there's no bliss. There's nothing but the reaction to the wanting. So the Buddhists explanation that all this existence is dukkha boils down to the fact that when there is that realization of nobody then of course there's not existence there is the physical body but the existence as we know it is no longer there and the non-existence that's bliss and it can be experienced here and now. 
That's why I have again tried to give you all the possibilities of examining this fiction we live in so that you may get a little nearer to the understanding and then to the actual feeling that all we have been doing has all been nothing but a delusion, an illusion, an optical illusion, a hallucination, a dream state. See, if you dream at night, and it seems quite real, doesn't it? And then you wake up in the morning, you're no longer concerned with it because it, you know it was a dream. It's totally unimportant. Mm-hmm. So you might tell somebody, you know, I had this nightmare, but I mean, it's all gone, it's finished. And even if it was a nice one, it doesn't matter at all. It's the same here. It's life in a dream. And wake up from it, it's all gone. It has no connection. Just like the night's dream has no connection with your daily life. You can remember it, sure. Even that is somewhat vague. It doesn't uh, come together exactly. Because in that dream that we live in, there's somebody to whom all this is happening. And that's the dream. There's nothing but the pen and the writing. So these were um, an overview and a review of the things one can do in order to see the fiction that we are perpetuating and hopefully stop perpetuating one day. Now, if you have some questions, this is the time to ask them. <coughs> Go ahead. In regard to the things we discussed about the mind and the and so on, I would ask more about to know more about this sloth and torpor, and especially regarding it as resistance. Yes, that's quite uh, uh, normal. <laughs> the the me illusion, the so called self, the ego, has a strong hold on mm-hmm. this uh, mind and body phenomena, and it's not easily shifted. And it resists all attempts at being shifted. It uh, doesn't like that idea at all. In fact, it, um, even in meditation, it has a strong resistance to it. And should it, at some time or other, through continual application, uh, be lost for a moment, it promises to come right back. And it is right back after the meditation. So trying to shift it through the understanding of this um, uh, mind-body process, of course there's an enormous resistance. And when the mind becomes negative, it has no energy. A negative mind is totally without energy. The more negative it is, the less energy it has. A positive mind is with energy. So as soon as there are negativities in the mind, the mind also says, I'm tired. It is the one thing that 
overcomes it completely. So positive mind is buoyant and uplifted and therefore can work. And negative mind is always tired. So it's a matter of um, uh, degree, of course. <laughs> so you can examine that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, okay, it's clear to me, but you need to examine it for yourself. The odd thing about so many of these things that I keep pestering you with is that they just seem to be there. You know? And, and, you, just, and you look at them and uh, be in uh, quite lovely meditation for maybe uh, an instant. And this, uh, this, this time just arises and, and takes you over and you're gone. In the meditation, the tiredness? Even there. Mm-hmm. And after the meditation. <laughs> okay. Concentrated meditation brings energy. Unconcentrated meditation brings tiredness. That's true. And if, the medit- if in the meditation there is tiredness, um, the thing to do is immediately open the eyes, move the body to give it a little more um, uh, blood circulation, and give yourself a pep talk. I didn't come all the way to America to sleep. <laughs> or whatever you wish. This is only a suggestion. <laughs> Anything. Any pep talk at all. That's, these are the uh, suggestions by the Buddha for that particular difficulty. So it's not an unusual difficulty. It's our third hindrance. So it's uh, not unusual. But one does need to do something about it because of the fact that one doesn't always have this opportunity to do, uh, you know, in a um, protected environment to have the meditation. So this is the time to do something about it. <laughs> that may have several reasons. Either it's because I want to look good. That's a possibility. <laughs> or it's because you should have to know in the dark. <laughs> One can do too much of that. One can do too much sleeping also. It's also possible. 
one does need a certain amount of rest. There's no doubt about it. Um, but it can also be too much, which I can't judge. I'm not saying it was, but it can be. But this is not an uncommon uh, difficulty. But actually, after all this time, it should have disappeared. <laughs> Give yourself a nice pep talk. <laughs> okay, anything else? Nobody else having any difficulties. <laughs> yes. This is a little unrelated, but more from yesterday. Did Siddhartha Gautama, Gautama, Sorry? Uh, did Siddhartha Gautama come into this realm as a once-returner? No, no. Well, not at all. Uh, uh, the Buddhas appear uh, because they have made a resolution to become a Buddha. But not, uh, but they do not become get any uh, enlightenment stages uh, before that birth when they are ready to become a Buddha, and the whole enlightenment takes place in one sitting. So you can get enlightened in one sitting. Yes. What is after the years of austerities? Well, he didn't only do austerities. He first he did jhanas. First, Jonas, and then he did some austerities, and then he decided neither way. And then he got under the Bodhi tree. So he did all four paths um, in, in one, one sitting, sitting, yes. Nice, isn't it? You can get it. It's a determination was made uh, 500 lifetimes earlier to become a, a Buddha. That has to be made in front of a Buddha, that determination, so it says. And uh, at that time he was the sage Samedo. And uh, he made it uh, in front of the Buddha Dipankara. And uh, so then he became the Buddha. But it's no use waiting for the next Buddha to come around because it takes eons. So, I mean, unless one wants to be reborn, eons, eons. If you'd like to know what the length of an eon is, I can tell you, actually. <laughs> I know. Because it is said that an eon is a, um, a granite mountain seven miles long, seven miles high, and seven miles wide. And on this granite mountain, there is a little bird. And that comes once... Every hundred years, not the same little bird, one little bird comes. Every, once every hundred years, and it sharpens its beak on the granite mountain. And when the granite mountain is gone, then an eon has passed. <laughs> so that's the lens of an eon. Nice, isn't it? <laughs> Um, there was one other thing here, which is at the end of the sutta, because I'm not going to return to this uh, discourse. I'm going to um, um, explain the Four Noble Truths uh, as of tomorrow. So I'll read you this ending here. This is the very end of the discourse, the original discourse. Then there's more explanations. He says, Ananda. If anyone should say of a person whose mind has been thus liberated, liberated through understanding that there is no self, 
that he holds the view a Tathagata exists after death. A Tathagata is a Buddha. Uh, literally translated, the word Tathagata means one gone thus. Gata is gone and Tata is thus. One gone thus. So you can't use that. So it's a, it's a word that is used for the Buddha. A Tathagata exists after death. That would not be proper. Or that he holds the view a Tathagata does not exist after death. That would not be proper. Or that he holds the view a Tathagata both exists and does not exist after death. That would not be proper. Or that he holds the view a Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist after death. That would not be proper. For what reason? Because that person is liberated by directly knowing this. Directly means through your own experience. The extent of designation and the extent of the pathway for designation, the extent of language and the extent of the pathway for language, the extent of description and the extent of the pathway for description, the extent of wisdom and the extent of the sphere for wisdom, the extent of the round of samsara, the extent to which the round turns. He understands all that. To say of a person who is liberated by directly knowing this, that he holds this view, one does not know and does not see, that would not be proper. So uh, this is the uh, uh, continual question which I've answered already once, whether an enlightened one exists after death. And the reason that this is all wrong, all possibilities are wrong, because there is nobody there to exist or not exist. And a person who is enlightened would know that and would therefore never have any of those views. And the words designation, language, and description, we have already discussed that they are our way of making our concepts real. And uh, these are concepts and not reality. So this is, so to say, the end before it goes to that which we already have done, namely the jhanas and the niroda. That is the very end. This is a... one of the most important discourses of the Buddha, the Mahanidana Sutta, the great discourse on causation, and also one of the most difficult. But since this was supposed to be for advanced students, I see no reason why you shouldn't grapple with the most difficult. <laughs> Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Become aware of the joy that lives in your heart if you let go of all the other things that are there too. Focus on the joy caused by your practice, caused by all the things that you've been able to do in meditation, in calm, in insight. 
become aware of the effort you have made and be joyful about the results. Focus on that joy. Let it permeate you and surround you. Now put your attention on the person sitting nearest you in this room and fill him or her with your joy about his or her practice. Give your joy as a gift to that person. being truly happy about that person's achievements and efforts. And now have joy in your heart about everybody's efforts and achievements and give it as a gift to each person here, filling each one with that joy, embracing each one with joy. Experiencing the wonderful aspect of joy with others. Think of your parents. Fill your heart with joy about all the good things that they've ever done and experienced mm -hmm. and give them that joy as a gift. Being joyful about their achievements, about their happy experiences. Fill their hearts with that joy.
Now think of those people who are near and dear to you and feel the joy in your heart about their well-being, their efforts, the good things they've done. Fill their hearts with that joy. Embrace them with that joy. Now think of your good friends and remember all the good deeds they've ever done, their friendship, their efforts. Fill them with joy. Give them the joy of your heart as a gift. Think of other people you know. Let them arise before your mind's eye. Neighbors, relatives, acquaintances, people at work, anyone you can think of, and rejoice with their achievements, their efforts, and fill their hearts with that joy. Embrace them with it. Think of anyone whom you find difficult and remember all the good things about that person and then rejoice in those efforts and achievements and fill that person's heart 
with joy. Giving your joy to that person as an unconditional gift. And now let your heart, full of joy, expand and enlarge and let the brilliant rays of that joy reach out to the hearts of people near and far. Giving them the gift of joy Rejoicing with them in their happiness, in their efforts. And by having joy in your heart, adding to the joyfulness in the world. Let it reach out as far as the strength of your heart will go. Now put your attention back on yourself and feel the strength, the energy, the buoyancy that a joyful heart brings. Let that strength and energy permeate you and the joyfulness embrace you.
male beings have joy in their hearts.